Welcome to another episode of the Pedestrian Podcast. The Seahawks are back off their bye this weekend. Myself, Stuart Court, is here as ever with Mr. Adam Nathan. How are we, sir? I'm good. I was uh, headbutted in the lip by my 30 kilogram dog this morning, and I thought that was uh, going to be a good start to the day, but it's only improved, and I think uh, we'll continue on that trajectory from here. Yeah. Uh, eight years ago, Adam, the Raiders game was my first game in Seattle. I made a trip with us over living over in Canada. I was up in Alberta. It was your, what, second game? Third second game? game against the Raiders, eight years ago, indeed. Bruce Irvin's unbelievable pick six, which doesn't seem to exist on the internet anymore, which is a shame because it was yeah, still one of my, one of my favourite plays I've seen in person as well, outside that Paul Richardson pass in uh, New York, which I called. Um, <laughs> just before uh, this week on the pet pod, we are joined by a man who has Raiders Raiders fandom curl coursing through him, a former enemy journalist, BBC Radio House host, who has George Galloway, and Mike Carlson among his former co-hosts and colleagues, and currently can be heard on Talksport as well as on the View from the Lane and the Trans Europe Express podcast, and, and for the first time in 194 pod, pet pod episodes, I get to speak to a Spurs fan who was probably yep. there on the 16th of May, 1987. Welcome to the Pedestrian Podcast, Danny Kelly. How are we, sir? I'm very, very good indeed. Remind me of the pertinence of that date. Oh, sure. don't do it, Danny. <laughs> what have you done? Yeah. What have I've you walked done? straight into his uh, track. Oh, no. Uh, Gary Mabbitt's knee, Danny. Uh, Coventry City 3, Tottenham Hotspur 2, the FA Cup final. Oh, of course, yeah. Well, I can, well all right then. You've invited me onto your podcast. Let's go straight in the defense, shall we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was there at Wembley for the, uh, the that very unfortunate cup final. I was very lucky to be there at Wembley. Um, I was a music journalist at the time on the NME. Um, and uh, try as I might, I couldn't get a ticket. It was very hard to get hold of. Um, I was great friends with a man called Adrian Thrills. I think he still writes about pop music for the Daily Express, if my mind um, hasn't gone completely mad. Um, and he was also a Spurs fan, and we couldn't get tickets for love nor money. Now, Adrian was pretty heavily connected. He was sharing a flat at the time, but if my memory's right, yes, he was, with Pat Nevin, the footballer. So, <laughs> so no problem, we could get tickets. Could we get tickets? Could we help? <laughs> Adrian was going out with a woman who was my best friend. So it was a funny little triangle there. And she said, I'll get you tickets. She worked in the music business. said, I'll get you two tickets. And sure enough, on the eve of the game, she turns up with two tickets. And we said to her, and I won't use her name here because it's not fair. Um, let, let's call uh, Sheila for the sake of argument. Uh, she, I said, Sheila, how did you get these tickets? She said, Danny, I slept with someone for them. And f- she has stuck to that story steadfastly through thick and thin. She was the best woman at my wedding. She's still my best friend. And she still sticks to the story that she slept with someone to get tickets for her man and his mate to go to that cup final. That's how this podcast roll now. <laughs> new, new sheriff in town. I think we can rap. We're, we're, can we improve on that? I don't the, know, but that's the, magnificent. Uh, yeah. the, the only story I think my dad has from that, I was born... Uh, just under a year after that, so I wasn't even there for it. But um, was your dad a Spurs fan? No, he's a Cough City fan. Uh, oh. He, uh, I think, he yes, yeah, Stuart's holds... on the other side of the uh, on the other side of the divide. Unfortunately, okay. in this podcast, he still holds a uh, grudge against Jim Rosenthal because uh, he saw him before the game and he didn't think City were going to win. Um, my recollection immediately after, because we were all pretty shocked. Um, I rarely go to cup finals thinking Spurs are going to win this, but uh, they didn't. Uh, as you rightly say, Coventry yeah. City won. Um, afterwards, on the trains at Wembley Central, the overhead trains, 
because I lived in North London, so I could get an overhead train out of there. Um, and the best the Spurs fans could do was to taunt, this is in the middle of the 80s, of course, was to taunt the poor Coventry fans about their lack of job opportunities. <laughs> uh, and I thought, this guys, we lost this blinking football match. We've got to do better than that. If we're going to start with them, we've got to do better than that. <laughs> that you know you're not you're unlikely to be picking up a you know your your wage packet in the next and I don't I don't even know that Coventry was a particular unemployment but black spot but anyway that's what they did yeah uh, onwards yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One more th- uh, yeah one more thing on that though my dad yeah. says that May eighty seven was the best month of his life because he got married City won the cup and Villa got relegated. You soon fixed all that bliss for him. Didn't you? <laughs> I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. Well, it, no, he didn't see his team relegated until I, I rolled around, and it happened far too often. Um, Raiders this Sunday, mm. uh, a fandom which is one of those which is kind of like, not to over-age you here, but grandfathered in from the 80s when that kind of, the NFL first kicked off. Over yeah. Here. How, how yeah. did that start for you? Is that the time it started when the NFL first seeped in? Uh, absolutely. I am... Um, Look, it's you look. You've invited me on, so you're stuck with me now. I'm going to tell you a long, convoluted story about that as well. Um, look, I had just started really working in the music press at the time. The NME was uh, the most important music uh, culture magazine in the world. I don't think there's any argument about that, and which meant that everybody else on the magazine just about, because um, for the time when sport was incredibly unfashionable, because football was so unfashionable because of the crowd violence and all the rest of it. Um, and I, I was a two-day-a-week sort of stringer, um, just making my way. And Channel 4 had started to show the American football. And I got into it straight away. I thought, this is really, I'm really interested in this. And I'll tell you why later, perhaps. Um, and I remember being at a meeting in the office. And uh, the editor had noticed that the Channel 4 coverage of American football was going really well, um, was being very popular. He said, uh, uh, we've got this, this Super Bowl thing coming up. I won't do Neil, Neil Spencer's voice because it would be rude. Um, it, imagine somebody who had been on the roof of their work, smoking dope and doing Tai Chi prior to commencing the day. Oh, no, that's exactly what had happened. Um, so he's, he's there saying, uh, the, uh, oh, yeah, this thing looks like it's really, uh, could anybody write about this for me, about American football? So, of course, there are a lot of people looking at their suede shoes um, and uh, fiddling with the buttons of their leather jackets because they're too rock and roll. To, I said, I'll do it. There's a lot of there's a lot of sideways looks because if, if no one had volunteered, Neil would have forgot about it by lunchtime. I said, I'll do it. I'll knock out 400 words. And I wrote I wrote about American football as I saw it in the mid 80s. Um, and I wrote about it being an exact reflection at any given time of where American society was. Obviously, the fact that it goes backwards and forwards reflects the, the, the land grab, the race um, west, doesn't it? I mean, that, that much is, is clear to the meanest intelligence. Um, then I said how um, at that time there were, I think Warren Moon might have been the only black quarterback. Um, I said, you know, how you had all these young black people fighting in the trenches while the ultimate weapon was held in the hands of a, of a white man behind them who occasionally be launched down the field. And I even made the point that there was a particularly wet game one afternoon. And at that, t- that time, the players with their helmets still on wore c- capes rain capes down to their calves and they looked very like the American soldiers in Vietnam during the rainy seasons. And I made all these points, pretentious as it sounds now, and the then editor of the enemy gobbled it up. And I don't think I ever looked back from that moment. From being a sort of two-day-a-week string, the next thing I know, I was being offered huge features to write. <laughs> um, so I've got a great deal of, to thank American football for. Otherwise, I might still be Britain's most over-opinionated railway clerk 
which is what it was at the time. <laughs> Danny, um, I've got an incredibly ham-fisted theory about the 80s and 90s with, with the NFL mm-hmm. that there must have been this sort of level of exoticism almost coming ac- across from there and watching the colours and the sunshine. And you say that football at this time wasn't particularly popular with the hooliganism and the violence. And No, it was it was terribly unpopular, yeah. yeah did, did the NFL sort of scratch an itch of sporting exoticism amongst fans that perhaps when the Premier League came around in the 90s sort of replaced? Because I hear a lot about fandom in the 80s of the NFL and not much in the 90s for some reason. Um, I think... I think, I mean, I, I guess you could say it was it was filling a void, Adam, although, you know, I was still one of those who went to football every week, home and away, or often just to any game in London that happened to be on. Um, no, I think in my case, I think it scratched a different issue with me. I can't speak for everyone else. Um, and that it's, it's Americanism really appealed to me. Much of the culture that I love, cinema, popular music, um, and much else besides comes out of America, a country that has plenty of problems. And as we saw in the last few years under Trump, um, it's quite it gets gets to a place where now even its even its position as the as the bastion of democracy in the world is under threat. Um, but no, I, I think it's because it was American. I think I liked I liked the, the physicality of it, um, and the game was very different then as well. I and mean, you're right, of course. Nicky Horn banging on about the sunshine in Southern California as the players run out and some cheerleaders and all the rest of it. It was very different from the grim Tuesday evenings over the lane, um, you know, with the, with, the, with the sleet hitting you horizontally in the face. Um, and the, the Spurs team, they were okay in the, in the mid-80s. So, but the game was going downhill terribly, as you say. So, so that the game was different in, in particular the way it's played because now, you know, it's nearly 40 years. Let's be honest, guys. Um, neither of you were born when, when I was talking when I'm, when I'm talk, when I'm talking about. Now, because of the demands of television and, and health and safety, um, the game has become a quarterback passing game. Essentially, that's what it is. In the mid-80s, it was trench warfare. It was absolutely brutal, and defensive teams dominated the league. If you were the best defense, you tend to win the Super Bowl. And the players who the offensive players who were the superstars were not quarterbacks, though they were famous, of course. They, you know, they were running backs, William Perry, John Riggins, people who could make, you know, the last five yards when the team was five and goal, five and goal to go. If you could make that five yards, you were the superstar. Now the game has improved as a as a spectacle um, again because of the pressure of television companies are just not going to just going to what not going to watch, you know, essentially twelve guys pushing each other around while a 13th guy tries to run through a solid wall of flesh. I mean, eventually, even with lovely adverts, that's going to tire, isn't it? Game's changed a lot. No, yes, I don't think, Adam, if I'm truthful, I don't think it was an antidote to English football. I just think it was a new and exciting thing in and of itself. Uh, why, why the Raiders and all of that though? Oh, because, obviously Al, Al Davis was like right. the mouth of the league, wasn't he? For stand, stand well. back, stand back. I'm about to, I'm about to drop a massive name, and I don't want you to get hurt. Um, <laughs> I support the Los Angeles Raiders, wherever they're playing this week, Raiders, um, because Chuck D of Public Enemy told me to. Oh, um, yeah, that so, is yeah, Ka-dang. Ka-dang. <laughs> um, yeah. I, uh, I, I was originally because I was interested. I started to read up about the sport, and I got interested in the Green Bay Packers. Um, and I thought, all right, I'm going to follow the Green Bay Packers. Then um, I like the fact that they're community owned and all the rest of it. I went to New York to interview Public Enemy after it takes a nation of millions 
to hold us back. Then the greatest rap record ever made. Oh, and oh yeah, still the greatest rap record ever made. Um, maybe one of the greatest rock and roll records ever made. Um, and I spent a, a, a little while in New York. We couldn't track the band down for a while. And eventually I remember having um, a meal with, uh, with Chuck D, the most intelligent person I've ever interviewed, uh, in a Roy Rogers, um, a chicken joint on Broadway. And we got talking about the album, which has a black side and a silver side. And I said, I presume this is because you're, you're into the Raiders and maybe even the LA Kings, but you know, it's a Raiders thing. Because, of course, you know, they're the team that has traditionally been the go-to place for American black people who, who don't support the local team. And he, I said, oh, yeah, I like American football in that kind of casual way you do. And he said, who do you support? And I said, Green Bay. And he, and he shook his head from side to side and said, no, 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 Danny. He even remembered my name. You can't support Green Bay. Now, forgive me, people from Green Bay. This is one other person's opinion. He said, I think Green Bay might be the most racist town in America. He said, if you're black in Green Bay, it means that you're, you play for the Green Bay Packers or you're passing through for the day. Um, he said, no, 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 you've got to follow the Raiders. If you're rock and roll, you've got to follow the Raiders. And so that man, despite one brilliant season with Marcus Allen running and catching the ball and all the rest of it, that man set me on a lifetime, over half a lifetime, of supporting the worst team in America with all due respect to Cleveland and one or two others. Um, uh, I, you know, I'm already carrying the burden of Spurs around with me. And thanks, <laughs> Chuck D, who I still occasionally communicate with on Twitter, um, for various reasons we've kept in touch. Uh, thanks very much for putting me on the path of watching a team that's never, ever, ever go. Never mind win the Super Bowl. They'd be lucky to get into postseason most years, won't they? They're <laughs> terrible. And how are they doing this year? Oh, oh no, terrible again. Yeah, that's, given why the- I, that's why I end up supporting the Raiders. I mean, they did more than enough on Sunday night, though. Yes, they did do us a big favour on Sunday, thankfully. That was uh, yeah, well, celebrated okay. in all quarters, let me tell you. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure that, is, that is why the billions of dollars have been poured into that franchise, that club, over the past 40 years, is purely to see Seattle get the occasional break. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. that's how it works. Just there. to hear that one solitary cheer from Mill Hill was, the, yeah. Yeah, was, was yeah. worth all, all, all the money. That, yeah. that, being so entrenched in the music industry at the time, mm. yeah, there's, uh, yeah, there's Netflix documentaries you know, about NWA and there's, there's Raiders stuff everywhere they seem to be the team that carried the culture more than anyone else I mean did, did that that sort of work quite well at the same time given what you were doing for, from a day job to, to be aligned with that um I think I managed to keep it I have never managed to separate my football soccer uh, leanings from from the other work I do cultural work music all the rest of it um I've managed to keep it out well out of the way um, in terms of uh, of American football, because uh, although I'm a great fan of it, it would be it would be presumptuous of me to pretend that I'm an aficionado, that I'm absolutely steeped in it in that way. I, if I wrote about it in generally in relation to things that I know a great deal about, I think it would it would appear a bit false. I, I would know it was false um, because here's the example I give. I have a great friend who lives uh, who's American, lives in America, and. He is mad about cricket. I mean, he lived in England for 20 years. He nuts about cricket. But when we sit there watching cricket together, he kind of bows down to the fact that I've been reading about it since I was five, six, whatever it is. Same with soccer. Whereas I've watched a baseball match with him or or American football, um, particularly American football. um, I think I know everything about the game, but he has it in his DNA. Now, look, you two are experts. You love the game and you're experts in it. 
Um, it's a bit harder, I think. I, I came to, don't forget, I was already, you know, 30-something years of age when I came to it. Um, and so, well, 20-something anyway. Um, and it's a bit easier when, it, when it's, if, you, if you've had it since youth. You've been able to watch American football on television since you were both at the breast, yes? Um, it wasn't so for me. Um, so, no, the answer to your question, Adam, is I've, I've kind of kept my passion for it um, separate from everything else because I think I would come across as a bit of a fake. Now, this, of course, reached a, a sort of zenith for me when uh, Matt Coombs decided to take a year off from doing the coverage on, was it Channel 5? Yeah. Yeah. Was it 10 years ago? And um, a fellow who I'd worked with at um, Talk Sport had gone off to work for the NFL and said, I know you should get to present the American football. Get Danny Kelly to do the, <laughs> yeah, they had the late night game, the one that goes through till f- f- four or five in the morning. Um, and I said, I'd do it for a year. Um, so now you're on live television um, and you are about to, talk to a very large number of very, very informed people about something that you're very fond of, but could not in any way, shape or form be thought to be an expert. I did work hard on that. I boned up, as they say, on each game with as best as I could. And I, I will say this now. I have I have life, a lifetime of gratitude to Mike Carlson, who picked up, let's be fair, um, there's a lot of man here. I mean, you can see the top half of my body. Bear in mind, I'm six foot three as well. He picked up and carried me through that year, uh, that whole season on, on Channel 5. Uh, we loved, I loved it. He liked doing it with me. I mean, Nat is a real proper expert. Again, like yourselves, he's born into it, whereas I wasn't. Um, but he really carried me along. The only thing I will say, that it's, of course, depths of winter, American football. And it was being done at the old ITV studios, um, uh, not very far from where I live, somewhere behind the museum in, in central London. And ITV, they used to, it was their studio during the day. So they used to go and turn off all the power. I mean, all the heating. There was no heating. The heat didn't come on to seven o'clock in the morning. So it's now for half past three in the morning. You're watching the game. And of course, it go to an advert break. We were so cold in that studio that we would rush to the studio light while the adverts were on to try and get a tiny, a tiny moment in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the slight heat of the studio lighting. I used to leave that place literally frozen solid. Um, I, I used to worry that my lips would freeze up and I'd stop talking. As you've probably guessed if you've seen any of my work over the years, there's very little chance of that happening. <laughs> <laughs> when you did start out being a fan, um, sort mm. of in, in the 80s or whatever, mm. what, what was the... What was the fan culture like at the time, if there even was one? I mean, Stuart and I have got a friend that we, we've we picked up on the way who was a postman in Scotland. And right. as nefarious as this sounds, they had an NFL magazine that would arrive once a month and they'd pass it around the fans that were there. They'd swat up and then they'd hope that their team were on TV. And then the next magazine would come and it would be, you know, now we're, you know, what riches we've got every game, red zone, you know, an embarrassment of, of facilities to, to swat up on everything. But what was it like? Did, did you even know if there was an, an NFL fan, uh, you know, on the street or anything like that? Look, you're, you're pressing on something about culture in general, aren't you? Um, we are so joined up with the permission of Elon Musk. We are so joined up and, uh, these days by a variety of uh, technological platforms um, I'll, I'll try and explain to you how, how that wasn't the case right through to, I, I know exactly when it starts to change because I founded um, the second British internet company ever floated on the stock exchange, Football 365. 
Um, so I know exactly when it was. It was it was late '97 that was the internet things that was presented some possibilities. Um, there was, uh, to my knowledge, unless you were a fanatic, there were n- there was no connection with other people who li- who liked the game because um, you saw one game at the weekend, uh, and maybe uh, there was a I think there was a roundup ga- uh, program as well. At least I watched it in complete isolation. Uh, none of my workmates were interested in it. Um, nobody else was. I mean, it's hard to remember that, for instance, if you were in a, my younger brother was in a fantasy football league to do with soccer in the ninth. this is the 90s. And we're not talking about black and white television. We're not talking about the dawn of time and people fainting at the sight of a woman's ankle. This is the 90s. He was in a fantasy football league that was operated by post. People put pieces of paper into envelopes. There were little sort of slips of paper you could fold over and put a stamp on it, and they would send each other selections for the week uh, on, uh, through the post. Um, I remember mailing the Telegraph my Matt Elliott transfer for Leicester because you had to have a goal-scoring centre-half at the time. It was imperative. Well, you're, well you've been onto, onto, onto the actual fantasy football. I mean, I remember uh, the very first uh, season where... Fantasy football got imported from America and the NFL into soccer and Britain. I did it on, on the old Radio 5 before it became 5 Live. I was one of the people who did fantasy football. Um, I like I think Dominic Diamond introduced the program. Um, now, look, I'm, I can be very, very hardworking. I can also be tremendously lazy. And I didn't change my team once during that season of fantasy football. I made a few jokes um, on air. Um, I didn't change my team. And yet I was sort of hovering third or fourth throughout the entire season, but ever doing anything about some weeks, they only had six fit players, but they were good players, you know? And so I kept going, but that must have been, that opened my mind. One of two things. So the possibility that the way we communicate about our passions, whether it's football, dressmaking, cooking, or American football, something was changing that, the idea that people could communicate with each other um, was was going to stick, right? Because the, uh, the the industry was changing. I was at EMAP, one of the big publishers, publishing Total Sport magazine um, and Q magazine, and I remember being asked to go to a conference um, with all the senior editors and management for a very big, um, I think it was Britain's second biggest publishing company at the time, behind IPC. They said, some people are coming from America to talk about the internet, and they think that the internet, their thesis is that the internet is going to change the way we communicate each other and will blow away print and paper. Danny, would you, they knew I was a bit of a loud mouth, would you make a, a speech to the contrary at the conference? And so, and so at that conference, these two guys from America came and talked about something I didn't know anything about, the World Wide Web, as it was called then. And I was given the task of defending print and paper. And in a frankly blasphemous recreation of the Catholic consecration ceremony, in front of 50 people, I ate paper and drank ink to make my point about how closely human beings were attached to the printed word. Now, I got a massive round of applause and tremendous pats on the back, and I walked out of the room thinking, those two blokes from America are right, aren't they? They're absolutely right. And within 12 months, I'd left print and publishing and started an internet company because it was so blinking obvious that you were going to be able to make communities communicate with each other 
Initially, of course, it was all very clunky in step one, pushing out things. Um, and the football product we did was incredibly clunky in many ways, but it was so obvious once you'd thought it through and thought it through with brainy people, brainier than myself. And that's the difference between the way you consume American football and what was people were doing in the 80s and 90s, where I think they were very, very isolated. And a magazine would come, you're right, once a month. Or you could subscribe to American magazines, and they would arrive rolled up in a kind of piece of brown paper with six or seven stamps, the exotic stamps, with the heads of people you didn't recognize on them. But I, it's a different world, and it's almost impossible. I feel like somebody who, you know, you know how people who were born in the 1890s, they lived to see the telephone, the car, the aeroplane, and they're said to have lived through the greatest change. Like, they're, they're, this, this is not true. It's a, it's a historical um, anomaly. The people who have lived through the greatest change are the people like myself who started work on a typewriter, then had an electric typewriter, then da-da-da, da-da-da, now the internet, and soon I will be able to take my thoughts put them into a chip that I've had it put into my ear and transmit them to you without need of any of this, these cables and things. Um, it, 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 the last thing I say about this is if you want an example, and this is how American football has worked for most people, I think as well, or does work um, for years and years and years, I didn't want to go on Twitter. I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. And then my great friend, Danny Baker, one day sat me down. He was doing great things on Twitter to Danny You've got to go on Twitter. I said, why? Why would I want anybody to know what I think? I've already got several outlets, and why would I want anyone to be able to get hold of me? He said, he said he, and he reached down into the depths of his enormous brain and came up with it. He said, you know those crap bands you like from the 1970s? I said, yeah, there are hundreds of those. He said, well, the five other people like those bands are all on Twitter. And suddenly, bing, mm. of course, you're down into micro communities now, as well as, you know, Jay-Z having 10 million followers. There are communities of people who know each other because they all, the five or six of them, like one thing. And in the middle of that, you've got the way people follow their sports teams. Yeah. So, so welcome to the Reef Lecture. Um, coming up next. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what, what uh, over your time supporting the Raiders, obviously they've, oh. moved, they've moved around a few times, currently yeah. in, in Vegas. But was, was the Oakland... I think Adam Space may have just asked the same question in different words, but yeah. the Oakland of it all, with respect to people who have supported the Chargers, who obviously went from San Diego and went to LA, and they've kind of just like washed the hands of the team. Is, mm -hmm. is, is, was that something that was difficult for you, or because you're so far removed from it, like seven, 8,000 miles? Is it now it's, it's still the Raiders, it's still silver and, silver and black? Yeah, well, the answer to your question is that I've not uh, yet. The trauma of when Spurs knocked down the old ground and built the new stadium, the space station there, um, <laughs> is, is, was real. It was mm -hmm. physical. It was visceral. Um, I can't say that about the Raiders because um, I've never really – I mean, they should be in Oakland. That's where they're from. I get that. And uh, I would like them to be in Oakland. But, you know, American football, the economics of it just dictate something completely different. Um, the, and so I had not, I had not associated um, the club, the franchise, the team with a town particularly or a stadium. Um, I associated with them with those lovely colours, black and silver, and their incredible... 
um, almost scientific way of finding new methods in which to lose American football <laughs> matches in the fourth quarter. So my, they can, my, now they continue to play in the same kit and they continue to lose the matches. So not much changed <laughs> for me, I'll be honest. <laughs> my uh, my header on Twitter, and this is even having married, had a son four months ago, got a dog, will always Congratulations. be... Thank you. It will always be a picture of that horrible game against Southampton, the last ever game of a full White Hart Lane before they knocked the corner down. And mm. I think it will stay like that forever. But my wife did say after the last game that... I know you cried at that game, so you better bloody cry at our wedding in 18 months' time. And I did. Yeah. So that I, I was I was in the clear. But, but, Les, what, but tell what, the truth. Did you have to squeeze them out of the wedding? Really yeah, I got my, my, and my dad was behind me. You really squeezed my hand extra yeah, hard yeah. Just, to, uh, just to crack a knuckle or two. Bring a, bring a nail next time so you're absolutely and drive it into your own palm. Be That's a great plan. Yeah, but right. it's one of my earliest memories, and I'm 35 on Friday, is... Okay, come on, on, what is it? Congratulations again. I know, what are we doing here? But is, and is, congratulations look, on your huge dog. Yeah, he is, yeah, <laughs> in, indeed. Uh, but I, I remember in my formative years of a season ticket holder is watching on, on Lord Sugar's heavily pixelated Jumbotron on the Park Lane, these yep. images of the fridge who was coming to play mm. at Tottenham Hotspur. I, I imagine that was for NFL Europe, but... Again, it, I was slightly too young for it, but did you have any part in that? And was that what Clive Allen was was playing in when he was hoofing field goals through after he, he retired? I can't say about William Perry because I don't have a, a crystal clear recollection of it. Yes, Clive Allen, who I've worked with uh, and, and know reasonably well, uh, Clive is mad about the game. And yes, he, he did become a kicker for the um whatever the franchise was it was it was it the london monarchs in my i can't mm. remember exactly but he, he was a kicker and of course that's why in the back of his head no lesser person than harry kane thinks he can do it clive was his coach when he was coming through at spurs um and of course harry absolutely mad about american football um and at least one until very recently seattle quarterback and one of his dogs is named after him, isn't he? Uh, and uh, the, uh, I think he's got it into his head that it's, it's just a matter if you're decent, if you're good at kicking a football, it's a matter of running up and belting it up in the air and hopefully it'll work for them. Um, I mean, it's, it is hard to tell you about William Perry was, you know, the fridge to get to, to disparaging name. Um, just because you're 400 pounds doesn't mean you can't play a particular sport. Um, and I remember he, he came to London. It must have been that time. And whatever radio station I was working for, probably BBC, I insisted that we got him into the studio. And um, and people said, but, you know, he's a bit past his best ear and all the rest of it. And I said, no, no, get him in. I'll, I'll get something out of him. Well, it's fair to say he's a lovely man. It's fair to say, um, I thought I asked some pretty interesting questions. And it's fair to say that he did his level best to answer them. The problem was, either permanently or just that recently, he'd had his front teeth knocked out. And so he was talking to me like this, but there was a very wide American accent as well. It was very hard to understand what he was saying. <laughs> uh, but that's my recollection of meeting, meeting the fridge on that trip, is that he'd knocked his teeth out and hadn't had them replaced. I presume it had been a recent training accident. Um, and he spoke to me like that for about 40 minutes on the radio. It was good. <laughs> yeah. yeah Clive, 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 Clive um, you know, as I say, uh, I worked with him for years and... Uh, uh, he he is another one you should get on your podcast actually because he really knows about American football he likes it well Danny only one out of the three of us has his phone number so if you'd like to oblige yeah, you're, you're, you're very welcome him. to I'll indeed. certainly ask him why not yeah, also, also I'll, in, I'll start the podcast the same way I started this one as well because he scored after 90 seconds of that cup final um, yeah. 
yes, he did. One one of the forty nine goals he got that year, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. But, yeah, but that, but that I think that is that is right though. It's like a, the the visceral connection to like a place with our football teams. Obviously, Highford Road for Cov. I yeah. hate going past that house in the state. Fifteen years, sixteen years later, so it is a but, bit. It, it, it it's a connection, isn't it? But it's a different connection we have with these teams seven thousand miles away. It, it would be now. Look, Americans are different because they don't expect to <clears throat> necessarily support their local team because the football stadiums in England, in America, they're large. Um, like out of town shopping centers outside of these big towns, by and large, not all, but most. Um, whereas the soccer grounds in England, um, almost all were in the middle of, of towns, industrial towns. And we all know the story that the you do a half day Saturday, go to the pub, and then the men, and it was the men, would go to this thing. So the football is much more entrenched, I think, in ordinary. It was working class culture. It can't be now because of the cost of tickets. Than even American football is. Although college football, there's a different thing going on there with, with how they affect the towns in which it's played. And it is not an exaggeration when people talk about football grounds in England as being sort of cathedrals, because as religion, certainly the Protestant religion in Britain, faded, um, so the devotion to these football teams um, became more and more entrenched. And I think it's one of the reasons why there was all the football hooliganism that we talked about in the 1980s. I think people, working class men, boys, men as well, had got into defending their territory. It, it would make no sense to Americans that there's actually the one end of the ground <laughs> is to be protected from the urbans who support the other team at any cost. And that includes violence. You know, it just wouldn't make any sense. At all, and of course, part of that is they don't have as many travelling away fans. Although you see a bit more of it now in the NFL, don't you? I think there's a bit more away fans. Um, and I had a chance to think about this a lot because I did the last day at the old White Hart Lane, the game against Manchester United, um, from the, com- the the radio commentary box at, at White Hart Lane. Which, if you want another comedy skit, I'll tell you about. But it was incredibly emotional day, um, and. So much of my own time, personality, money, um, and emotion, tears, were were in that ground that I don't know that it'll ever be the same for me, the new stadium. The only comfort I had was that that it's the same place, isn't it? So it's like you, you could argue you've just done up your house. I mean, it's had a pretty fantastic makeover and the extension is <laughs> astonishing. Um, but it's, at least it's on the same spot. And I met, this, is, this is what Americans won't understand uh, and why NFL is different from soccer. When they announced they were going to knock the stadium down at Tottenham and build a new one, my then producer, you won't mind me saying, man called Clint, um, was b- b- disturbed. And Clint's a guy who doesn't get disturbed easily. He's certainly not very expressive. Man, he said, Fanny, I hate this. I can't have this. On and on he went. And this went on for a period of weeks and months. And I said, eventually, I said, to Clint, it's got to change. The economics is there. You know, this, that, the other. He said, Danny, my dad's ashes are on the pitch. Hmm. And, I, and then you think, okay, that's how connected we are uh, to our football grounds. And don't forget, 
at Everton, they had to ban the practice because the grass was starting to suffer. So many people were putting their relatives' ashes onto the football ground. Mm. <laughs> Again, there's a different relationship. Um, uh, I, I'd had practice for this, though, hadn't I? Because I was born and brought up in Islington. I should be an Arsenal fan. I, I, and, um, you know, all my family, for whatever reason, support Arsenal. My wife was an Arsenal season ticket holder until we moved to Ireland. Um, and I... And they had the trauma of moving, you know, half a mile down the further down the Holloway Road when they left Highbury to to, to build their rotten old junk pile that they got there <laughs> by the Holloway Road station. Um, and I noticed that they had all dealt with it pretty well. But of course, they dealt with it pretty well because sooner or later, Arsene Wenger came. And they started to have a very good team, and the cost of the stadium was negated by having a genius manager. Um, so I thought I would deal with it pretty well. So, I mean, I love the new stadium. It's nice to have the nicest stadium in the world. Hello, Texas. Um, <laughs> uh, but that won't last. And I, <coughs> all I hope is that the younger people who go will, they will have memories and traumas and triumphs like I felt at the old ground um, and will, will bless the new ground with their tears over the years, tears of joy, tears of pain, because that's that's what community football is in England, even though it's now 70 quid to go and watch a nil-nil draw. This leads me on really nicely. I mean, as, as, as an aside, I also should be an Arsenal fan, but my dad, who was born in Chile and sat on Jimmy Greaves' knee as he arrived in Santiago for the 1962 World Cup and then arrived in London in 66, said, who does Jimmy dad Greaves... Is, your, your dad has told you some tremendous lies over the years. I have he? got the picture, Danny. I have got the picture, which I will send to you on Twitter in about 25 minutes, but that has saved me. Um, but... You mentioned kids and sort of the modernity of, of sport and, and where we're yeah. going. And it strikes me that Red Zone, the NFL, stop-start culture, um, it sort of lends itself to the way in which people consume their sport these days, isn't it? And as a, I, I try not to do, you know, what's good in football and what's not good no, in the no, NFL sure. and vice versa. But I, I do it all the time. I, I, it concerns me as a soccer fan, first and foremost, that the way in which we love the game, the three of us, is probably not going to carry on into the sort of immediate gratification generation. And whereas something like Red Zone is so popular and here's the best play from this game and the best play from that game and it's stop-start and here's an advert and you can check your phone and you can tweet something out. I, do you worry about the state of future fandom in, in contrast to how the NFL is, is able to bring people through? Yes, is the answer, but not necessarily in the same ways as, as you worry about it, Adam. Um, I think the game has to has to look forward, and I always look to the NFL to see how they've done this, how they've done that, how they've done the other, because despite the extraordinary power of soccer globally and particularly the Premier League, now the Premier League makes more money than the NFL now from television rights, um, but that's because it has an overseas deal that the NFL could never really match because although we all love it, you know, we're not addicted to it in the same way as people are addicted to the Premier League. They have, so they have the domestic deals. Overall, the NFL still has the biggest single television contract. That's the domestic one for America. But the money it's pouring in now, which is why, of course, all the NFL owners are falling over themselves to buy Premier League clubs mm. because they think they're undervalued. When Todd Bowley can play, can sit in with his all his American sports interests, can sit there and think, I know, I'll pay three and a half billion dollars for a club that's under sanction from the government 
um, and have, may or may not have a future, that's telling me that every Premier League club is massively undervalued. It's why Daniel Levy is suddenly thinking, oh, I might sell this. I might get four and a half billion dollars <laughs> for it. Um, but the Americans are not stupid. They, they know it. Um, you're right. The way kids, dark kids, consume um, sport, sitting there flicking around on their phones, commenting on the phone, you would, in theory, think that the um, American football, with its stop-start nature, even baseball, um, would be in a better place to exploit the changes in the way that we're watching sport than, say, soccer. But I think, I think that's too easy an argument myself. Um, recently, we, um, we had um, Piquet retiring at Barcelona. Now, he's going to be probably the next Barcelona chairman um, after Laporta. And immediately he started up about we must modernise the game. And he was talking about exactly the things you're talking about. Kids communicating on phones and all the rest of it. And, of course, what he's saying is we must have a different format, more advertising and all the rest of it. Sure, make it four quarters, whatever. But, of course, he's being disingenuous. What the powers that be, and I'll come back to your point in a minute, Adam, what the powers that be in soccer can't stand, the FIFA-rati, the UEFA-rati, the chairman of Barcelona, or the soon-to-be chairman of Barcelona, um, Real Madrid, etc., they can't stand that they don't own the actual game. They are part of it. They make a lot of money from it. They run it, they rule it, but they don't own it. The second they can say, we have to have a slightly different format, take advantage of the new technologies and the way children and young people are consuming their sport. What they mean is we need to have a format that we can copyright so that we can own the actual game. Well, I don't know how how um, liberal you are in your podcast. So they can fuck off. <laughs> they can fuck right off. And then when they've got fucked off for a while, I know what the people are saying, you can fuck off again. No, don't fuck off again. Just die where you stand. This game, <laughs> this game was invented by generations of working class people going to it. You don't own it. And I don't care what inventing or things. You don't own it. And that's the reason I want to do that. But also, secondly, Adam, the idea that young people can only consume something that's 30 seconds long is arrant nonsense. True. Horror films, two to two and a half hours long. Stranger Things, the episodes are two hours long. The NBA, three hours long. All of them absolutely beloved by teenagers, beloved. So it's a matter of how you sell them things and how good the product is and their access to that product. They can do the flicky around 30-second thing. They're quite capable of sitting there and staring at Stranger Things for two hours. The question here is, is the content good enough? And uh, they need to reduce the cost for young people to go to, to football matches and stop squeezing the fans for every last cent. Well done, Bayern Munich. You don't do that. And they need to crack down on the nonsense of diving and time wasting because young people, more than those of us who've had the edges knocked off us by time, young people see through that kind of fakery so easily and so quickly, and they realize that their time is being wasted. And their money, whether it's their subscription or their phone bill or their actual tickets of the game, is being robbed from them by people not giving them full value for money. And I think if they, if if no, if, if Gerald Piquet was to say we must improve the product, I'd back him hundred percent. But we must just change it. Look at what, look at the nonsense going on in cricket, where they're alienating 
You saw today, England played Australia. England played Australia in front of precisely zero people <laughs> because in their greed for money and scheduling unnecessary tournaments and in, in England, two separate white ball short forms of the game just because they forgot to register the copyright for T20. They're pathetic. The people who run our sports are pathetic. And, and also, whatever way it goes, um, you know, football, the NFL football is very different. I suspect the, the power of soccer is that it will find its own way to make use of these new technologies, as it did during the pandemic, when you had the false crowds, enhanced reality and all the rest of it. So I don't worry. I do worry about it, Adam, but not in the same way as you, as you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always remember, I think, when Monday Night Football started, uh, you know, and they, they, they had the bleachers with the 20 different fans. One fan of each club was in the bleachers. And it felt to me that that was the moment where football fans were allowed to emerge from sort of being the great unwashed to being part of, of the sport. And uh, quite a moan that Stuart and I have on a fairly regular basis is that we're 200 episodes into this podcast, five years. We've had Seahawk captains, we've had players, we've been fortunate enough to have coaches and tremendous guests and nothing seems to come from it. And, and, and I wonder whether you think that... What do you mean nothing seems to come from it? I'm, I'm, sure, well, I'm not sure what you mean. So we try with NFL UK, we try oh, with yeah. the local sort of TV stations. And I actually mentioned to someone at The Athletic, you know, we do a podcast. Is there any, there's no scope, it, it, you know, it's football related. No, no problem. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if you think that the NFL and fandom here, with the way it's growing, you look at the games in the UK, they're tremendously well attended. I wonder if you think we've sort of hit this ceiling where this is how far fans will allow to go with their sort of homemade content because we've got another bigger kid in town, which is is football. Or if it might be a, a, a case that you know, we, we are able to see, because every UK team has podcasts like us and mm-hmm. amazing content, and, and we know the game. I hope, you're not, I, just, I hope you're not pretending this is amazing content. Me just oh, shouting. This is dr- well, the other 31 yeah. have got amazing content. Good, content. good, 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 good to hear that. <laughs> and I sort of hope that they're one day able to, to show themselves off to the world. But it's one of those things that, you know, we love this. It's a, it's a passion project for us. And you know, we don't expect anything more from it than to have a, a good natter for an hour once a week with someone that, that we sure. like. But but I wonder if you think that fandom will at some point grow beyond where we are, which is three or four games a year. And, and that then, you know, you've got Will Gavin on TalkSport is, is mm. the voice. And that's that. Yeah, good old Will. Yes, exactly. Um, I think it we. <laughs> I think the NFL would obviously like to establish franchises outside of the United States. I mean, that's obvious because they, we on here have been talking about, we look at the NFL, I look at it for the way that people are trained. I look at some of the media activity. So much of it is just better organized than professional football. But the fact is that professional football not only continues to dominate the globe, despite the best efforts of FIFA, to throw it away in the nonsense we're seeing in the Middle East right now, um, it continues to grow and grow and grow. The it is a huge it is whether they like it or not, whether we like it, it's a huge threat to the NFL because it it, it continues to grow. Soccer in America um, continues to grow. I did a documentary this very weekend about Pele, and I spoke to somebody. Uh, you know, who's involved with 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 with, with soccer in, in the United States? Who said, you know, Pele, his effect in the New York Cosmos in the seventies, there wasn't a soccer pitch really in the whole of the United States. You you know, they they were playing on converted baseball diamonds, 
But he said within five years of Pelé, George Best and Rodney Marsh and all the rest of them, Bobby Moore, playing in America, who flew over Texas, he was from Texas, suddenly every high school you saw baseball diamond, six American football pitches. And what's that thing with the little squitty goals? <laughs> it's soccer, right? And you don't have to meet, I don't have to tell you that the game is taking off in the United States as well. It will never probably match. But the, the, the threat there is to the NFL is to continue global success of soccer. And the problem for you chaps, and I hear what you're saying about trying to establish these seeds uh, in the ground in Britain, is that football, and it, I'm, I'm again, I hate it, football has come through the Premier League, but football in general has killed virtually every other sport, left them desperate, impecunious, grasping. By which I mean, when I was a lad, um, during the summer, the cricket was on the back pages. And I could tell you the 1-11 to 11 batting order of each of England's county sides. Not anymore, <laughs> because... A, the 1-11 the, the, the to 11 changes all the time because people fly in and out from various franchises. But B, it's gone further and further back in the national agenda. You wouldn't put cricket on the back page. Unless Ben Stokes gets into some kind of personal trouble, you wouldn't put cricket on the back pages. So cricket got eaten alive. Rugby comes along with its great base of middle-class supports, people with money, nous, and economic knowledge. They try to match in a tiny way what's been happening in professional football, pay the players a bit a, a decent wage, razzmatazz the grounds, get the thing on TV. And yet we've seen two of their clubs going bankrupt in the past fortnight. They can't keep up with this monster that football has created. Athletics used to be a big sport in Britain. It doesn't make BBC anymore. They put it on one of their, one of their internet platforms. People are only interested in football. And I think that's, the, what, that's what you're up against here. The NFL, apart from the logistics, we all know that's going to be a problem. You'd have to keep 31 sets of training kit for every other franchise in London or yeah. Frankfurt or wherever it was going to be. It would be you'd have to hire a warehouse um, and all the rest of it. So I hear your pain. And I think, I still think that the games in Wembley, and White Hart Lane, and more recently, Munich, was it? Hmm. They're events. They're not American football matches. They're American football events hmm. where people like you or me, people who really like the sport, can go along to see a game. And it's been this year has been brilliant because well, I haven't got to the games. For the first time, some of the better teams have played in London. And can you imagine the arm twisting that was going on when they were telling the owners of the better teams, yeah, you're going to play in London. <laughs> I don't know what they've been offered, how many first-round picks in the future they've been offered to, to go along with this. Because we were, let's be honest, we were getting yeah. lesser successful teams. No one wants to call them dregs. The lesser successful teams were coming and playing. Not, not Seattle, far too good. We, far too good for that. Well, Russell Wilson, no way were they coming. Um, uh, I still think they're big events. I still think it, it, it is very hard. The ground in Europe is very, very stony for other sports because football mm. run things yeah. almost completely. Yeah, I mean, on, on that London point, we saw that with the Seahawks. The way they talked about coming over to London in 2018 to how they talked about being in Munich and how they were in Munich, mm. they were so much more connected to 
the city. I mean, and they seem to be when they were just co- uh, cocooned off over in the, over at the Grove. But it's because they didn't really want to come in 2018, but they enjoyed no. it. They won, <laughs> so now they're open to it every couple of years, just on the on the league's dime, jumping on the private. Jet for three, four, seven, eight, nine hours. It, it, those, those it's a two-way. The internet's a two-way street, Stuart. Um, Americans are traditionally isolationist. They believe they're the best at everything. They're exceptionalism gone mad. Make America great again. All that stuff and nonsense. But the internet and the availability of hundreds of twenty-four-seven TV channels, even they. Um, can see that you know Europe is not this terribly frightening place um, <laughs> where where no where nobody speaks that English um, and all the rest of it. And I suspect that also I suspect that the the law has come down from on high. You have got to get on in Europe because we have got to plant a flag in that continent before it's too late. It may already be too late for them. Um, and it would be if I if I gave you if we said I put your dog and your and your new wife against a wall. Um, and said, uh, Adam, right, we, what you have to get this question right, or, or these are going. You'll never see them again. We, and the question was, would soccer take over America or the NFL take over Europe? You can only choose one or the other. You'd say, you'd, it, it, the truth is they're, they're on a mission that is much more difficult now than, than the establishment of football, you know, soccer in the United States. Um, my God, I'll never work for the NFL again, will I? Let's be <laughs> honest with these kind of opinions. But but this is what you asked me to speak what I think, and that's what I think. I think the game will be will be amazingly popular on television. I think it's amazingly popular on the internet. I think it's an amazing uh, popular betting proposition. Um, I think it's still got a lot of work to do before it becomes culturally embedded in Europe. Not with you two. You're mad about it. Not with me. I, I'm a great a fan without being an aficionado. I'm an enthusiast for the game. Um, but it, the, the, it's very hard to get the roots of any new sport into that cold, hard ground of soccer. If, if we were to uh, sort to wrap up to give the NFL some praise, you know, I, I do love the idea when you watch another sport. Wrap up, I've only just started. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we can, get, we can keep going. You, you watch other sports, you think, I tell you what, that would be great in football, wouldn't it? And um, I always look at little things in other sports and, I used to think the salary cap, oh, the salary cap, amazing. But realistically, you can't do that with European law and whatever. It's not going to work. But what I do love about the NFL is 53 players in the team, and that's your lot. If you want one, you got to get rid of someone. If Manchester City want to buy Harry Kane, Haaland's got to go. And then you, you maintain a level of parity by sort of allowing the better players to drop down the league. Chelsea have to sign Wilfred Zaha, so Pulisic has to go to Aston Villa and Buendia goes to Southampton. And it... it, it props everything up which makes no. everyone feel a bit better but if is there something in the nfl that you watch oh. and you think i'd love that i'd it's love about, that about 40 about 40 <laughs> things i would like the nfl to run the premier league and, and that's the truth of it um so nfl i'm back i'm back in looking for work now um i i i, I would let the nfl run the premier league look there's so many things Clearly the greatest thing about American football, apart from the ball flying out through the air and a man running at 45 miles an hour, catching it while another man of 30, 300 pounds tries to stop him. Clearly what's the best thing about it is the parity. The idea that uh, each season comes around and your 30 odd teams, all their fans have a reasonable expectation that this could be a good season. Um, parity is harder to achieve in soccer. Um, I don't. I don't think of the um, the 
salary cap is insurmountable, the idea of a salary cap. They've done it in other sports. You have to do it within the law, of course, Adam. I, t- I totally get that. And I know the argument is, oh, but if you have a salary cap, the best players will go and play for Real Madrid. They're already going to play for Real Madrid, you <laughs> idiot. Um, and I remember football in the 1970s, um, particularly in the 1970s for me. It's all about age, isn't it? Um, you know, none of the best players in the world played in Britain, but the football was fantastic. Um, the, the competitiveness of it, the the intensity of it, the emotional connection to the supporters was fantastic. Um, so I don't buy the argument about I'd put in a salary cap tomorrow. Um, and if we lost a few players um, to go and play in Germany or France or wherever, so what? Uh, would, would Spurs, you know... Uh, we just like to win on a Saturday. Nottingham That's all that really Forest, Nottingham Forest changed all their players <laughs> in, the, in the summer. Every single one of them. All that matters is that red shirt yeah. with, that, with that tree on the front of it. That's what yeah. Nottingham Forest is. These soccer clubs are not franchises. They exist purely and only in the memories, hopes and expectations of their supporters. That's what they are. A collective, a collective miasma of feelings about them. The rest of it is nonsense, you know. Um, so I, I, I would bring in a salary cap tomorrow. I, I, I think if there was to be a Super League, and God forbid the way it was being bandied about, um, you'd have to have, you know, a head man like they have in, in, in what are they, what's his, what's his phony baloney title now, the person who runs the, um, the, the NFL? The commissioner. The commissioner. That's, commissioner Goodell, what a great name. Yeah, let's call him the Tsar. Let's, have, let's promote him to Tsar. <laughs> let him have epaulets on his jacket and everything. Tsar <laughs> Kelly. Tsar Kelly big, could be a good abs- one. I would be brilliant at it. A big, <laughs> a big admiral's hat like Janet Jackson used to wear. Let's have all that. Um because uh, because at the moment in, in the self-interest of the clubs the the brainy blokes who run America, the NFL they realize that the clubs are great but if you really want to make the big dough you have to make the league work whereas in England and Germany and France and Spain the club owners think that the league is a nuisance and an inconvenience to them having this great one club well sooner or later you're going to see that television pays the piper they will not stand in France for a few more years of Paris Saint-Germain putting out their dysfunctional collection of mercenaries and still win the league by 25 points. They will not stand. Bayern Munich have won the title in Germany for 10 years in a row now. That is not a league. It is an exhibition. Mm-hmm. And ha- how long the paymasters can st- stand that? That is much more likely to be the driver of change than any phony baloney Super League made up by the chairman of Barcelona, Real Madrid and, and Juventus because their teams can't compete with those in the Premier League. Um, I think the relationship with the, with the media is something I take straight out of American sport again. Train people, right. Americans do media training and they are trained to respond to the questions, interestingly, um, and in a way that they hope will engage fans who will then spend their money on tickets, TV coverage, helmets, jackets, sneakers, and all the rest of it. The media trend that goes on, and I know this for a fact, so I work in that media in Britain, is to get the players to mumble nothingness and word salad in the hope of getting away from that microphone as fast as they can. In the in the because of the off chance they might say something revealing. I think that's held the game back in England. And you can say, Oh, but Danny, look how powerful the Premier League is. Imagine how powerful it would be if it engaged with its supporters in a more meaningful way. Um, the coaches are ridiculous. 
<coughs> excuse me, the coaches are ridiculous. In America, they answer direct questions with direct answers. Um, and in Britain, Germany, France, Spain, it's all the same. Uh, with the odd occasional exception, either sort of people who've got their own professional stick like Mourinho or people like Klopp, who has a natural personality that he's not, not, not afraid of, but thinks is a selling point for himself, um, and a good thing for the club that he works for, will come out and talk openly. Give the supporters of their club and others something. Look, how many I have now either reported on or sat through, I would say somewhere in the region of two and a half million press conferences. In many of them, the manager is of a club who are well-financed, stacked with good players, magnificently trained, and they're playing somebody who's just come out of the championship. Let's say, for the sake of argument, Coventry City. They never sit back and say on the Friday, Thursday afternoon, Do you know, we're playing Coventry. God, they are useless. We are going to, this is the noise we're going to make. We are going to spank the <laughs> bottom from one end of Anfield to the other. Um, and uh, to quote Patton, not only shall we be victorious, but we shall grease the tracks of our tanks with their living guts. Um, it, 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 just for once, somebody tell the truth. You've got a great team. The opposition is useless. We're going to bash them from one end of the ground to the other. Not, of course, they're a very good team. They are a very, very good team. If they're so good, why have they got 14 points two-thirds of the way through the season? Someone <laughs> tell me that. I don't do it. I've never been to it. I've never been to a single press conference. I don't get involved in any of that side of the business. because So I was making it up. That was a lie. I've never been to a press conference, but I know what they're like. But also in America, I think, I think we've said to the when we've had like Seattle or some national national guys on mm. who cover the teams, the availability over there is insane as well. Because with, with Coventry, if they have a game Saturday, Tuesday, the manager and one player talks Thursday or Friday morning, and that's it until the next Thursday, Friday morning. Pete Carroll talks like five times a week. He has two three radio slots, he has all these press conferences. But the availability. The TV to, commentators visit with him to use their phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like production meetings and stuff. Like the availability of like the people that you want that the fans will want to hear from around like old quarterbacks coming back or injuries mm-hmm. to to D, the DK Metcalf of the world. It just seems so much. It, that that's the biggest thing with like the media side of stuff, which I think would be beneficial, especially to like. Clubs lower down the league, which have which have probably it still have the community aspect of it so much more. Absolutely, absolutely. They, they, the football clubs never understood um, before you know televising every game and all that. But their biggest way of reaching fans was the local newspapers. Um, they thought that they were doing the local newspapers, and they continue to think they're doing their television paymasters and their radio paymasters a favour by putting up two Herberts to block your questions for 20 minutes on a Thursday afternoon. What they didn't realise, what they don't realise, is that the local papers that back in the day and the TV coverage, that's all they've got. That is their way of communicating with the world. Why wouldn't they use it more wisely, more empathetically, more engagedly? Because they're terrified. They're terrified of, you know, putting a foot wrong. But so what? You know, sometimes press conferences go wrong. And here's the deal. The the Americans understand that American football is part of the entertainment industry, and it's a phrase you hear all the time in European football. Uh, oh, we're part of the entertainment industry. It's not true, is it? It's part of the big lie that's fed to what they want is to be paid like the entertainment industry, like Frank Sinatra, 
um, or Taylor Swift, but to have none of the responsibilities of the entertainment industry. And what they won't admit is that um, they, they, they well, you, you've said it, they just the, the communication between the entities, the football clubs, the, and their, their supporters is so bad as to be, well, I think it's the source of much of the rancor in the game. Yeah, yeah. Like, like <coughs> watching the AFL team, the community stuff that clubs do, burn down leagues is kind of, it's like a, it's the bloodline really. Because like, there's, there's people who I see at Coventry games, like we were really bad when you started going, why are you still here kind of thing? Like, yeah, but it's, it's, it's because a terrible football striker went to his school when he was like six or seven. He got yeah hooked on it kind of thing. Look, um, it, can, it can be done. Yeah. Lewis Football Club is a good example. Now, they're not successful, but they, they have great community relations. And if you want to see what I mean by that, the, the thought and the creativity that's gone into it, go uh, put in Lewis Football Club programs onto a computer. When we finish this, they make their programs and their posters for each home game. One year, they made them look like the covers of classic albums. The next year, they made them look like film posters of very familiar films and so on. They are attempting to reach out and using the collective cultural memory, the vibes of the town, all the rest of it, to, to bring people to their football club. Whereas from about the championship upwards, the attitude seems to be, and this would not be tolerated in America, you are very lucky to be allowed to come and pay 70 quid to watch us get a nil-nil draw with Crystal Palace. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's also becoming the same with concert going, isn't it, as well? Because obviously you see on the Ticketmaster Taylor Swift stuff this week and uh, Boyera playing Wembley next year, it's £96. This, is, this has and... been a, a, an amazement to me. The, the, I, I realise that, you know, um, as... What's, what's happened is that as recorded music, um, which was uh, a you know a thing you had to go out and buy and get when you had physical music, um, vinyl and CDs, has been replaced by the omniscience, the omnipresence rather, of, of music, and you can get it on Spotify or Tidal or whatever, um, that the music has stopped being the commodity, and now the commodity is to be in the presence of the makers of the music, the stars. And so, even though they might be a micro dot half a mile away on a stage in some big stadium, the idea that you're in the same building has become the thing that's valuable. Now, it wasn't, that was always somewhat of that. I remember, it's all pre-internet, I remember sleeping on the pavement outside the Lyceum in London's West End to get tickets when the Who previewed Quadrophenia. Um, it was a very cold night, but I slept on the pavement. I also slept on the pavement to get tickets for the UEFA Cup final for Spurs because you just wanted to make sure you were first in the queue. Now, I'm glad all those all that's gone. Um, <laughs> you know, it's that's ludicrous. But now this ludicrous thing of putting up the tickets and you've got that stupid little man walking along as you mm. get nearer and nearer to the front of the queue, this must be something great at the front of the queue. What's at the front of this queue? Is it beer-flavoured crisps? Is it the most beautiful human being you've ever seen? You'll be allowed to kiss them. No, it's a chance to give someone £90 to sit 400 yards away to watch a screen of them singing. And the screen of them singing is the exact same as watching them on the TV at home. <laughs> now, my nieces have followed Harry Styles around the planet. <laughs> I see it. I get it. I did the same thing with The Clash. But they were 15 feet away when I was seeing them <laughs> and not 1,500 metres Bless them. I, I, I feel sorry for the, the, the people who are having to 
A, compete for these tickets with bots who represent ticket scalpers, and B, the price of them. Look, all people who grow past a certain age complain about the price of sprouts, right? Um, and I know it's particularly pertinent in Britain at the moment. Um, that's I presume the price of sprouts has trebled in the past fortnight. Um, but the ticket- Andy Jacobs will be, will be primed with that on TalkSport at some point this week, I'm sure. Oh, oh Andy, bless him. Um, you know, yeah, it is. The, the eventizing of music is another thing that I... I want people, look, I, I've got to be careful how, how I, I don't want to sound like a fogey here. I was asked to go on the radio the last time the Rolling Stones played and say that it was uh, that uh, it was ridiculous, that people paying £120 to see the Rolling Stones. And I said this, and it's true. I saw the Rolling Stones at the peak of their powers. Um, in 1971-2, they played the Wembley Pool. They had all their great run of albums fresh to do, they brought in Billy Preston to play the keyboards. Trevor Lawrence led their American horn section. They could not have been better. And I wouldn't go and see the Rolling Stones now because that memory don't want to be sullied. But loads and loads of people haven't seen the Rolling Stones and they're the Rolling Stones. And if you want to pay 100 quid to go and see them, you have my entire backing. I cheer you on. Wouldn't go myself. <clears throat> but why would, you, why would you want to weigh on anybody else's parade? Yeah. Um, you know, so... It, 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 football, music, all things I love have suddenly become very, very expensive and they used to be relatively cheap. Yeah, I think I, to, bring, to bring it back full circle, Stuart and I met in Seattle just over eight years ago at the Seahawks Raiders game and we were absolutely thrilled with the opportunity to pay StubHub $320 for our seats in row quadruple X, triple ZY. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but I guess that's what fanaticism does for us. And I remember you saying about last minute goals, it gets the blood pumping. And uh, if that's what fanaticism does, does there's there's worse things in the world than that yes and i guess that's that's one of the regrettable things uh, but inevitable things is that um in the case of soccer off the back of italian 90 smart people worked out that there was a level of emotion involved with these things to which they had previously been unaware and unattached and if you can get that level of interest to use your phrase fanaticism you can monetize it and that's what's happened with Taylor Swift. And that's what's happening with the Seattle Seahawks. And that's what's happening with Tottenham Hotspur, though there is no cheese room, of course. That was just a big old false <laughs> false news. Um, and we all have to make our choices. You, 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 I know the, the, you're not forced to pay $300 to see the Seattle Seahawks. And I guess the best way you can justify that to yourself and to any any, any um, close relatives that are listening um, <laughs> is, is to say that you're, you're not going to a game anymore. You're going to, and you're not even going to an event I described earlier. You're going to what now gets marked as a memory. What do you want for Christmas? Oh, I'd like a memory, please. <laughs> okay. Well, here's last year's Christmas present. Remember that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, also back on that, like the, the Stones thing, I did, I had that with Liam Gallagher in the summer because he announced Nebworth and, I'm like, yeah, but Liam Gallagher, a Gallagher at Nebworth is something I wanted to go and like to go. Not always at Nebworth, though, is it? No, it wasn't, but it was pretty damn exquisite. It was unbelievable. You are, and there you are. The fact that it's it's still reverberating with you shows that that it was value. It was your money in your lifetime. And in your mind, and, and in the end, I guess that's what all of us have to make that judgment when we come to these ridiculous decisions about heating the house, feeding the, the 30 kilo dog, <laughs> getting another ticket to go and see Liam Bloody Gallagher. At 
Yeah, I, I even went to see the uh, the documentary they released on it on uh, Thursday, and we, with the same people I went to gig with, we all left. And like, that's a bloody good day that was back six seven months ago. Um, and how do, how was the film? It, it's good. It's good. Obviously, he's no Oasis songs because of his uh, older brother, but yeah, it's good. It's just it is like it's just we live in a day which was only six seven months ago, but if it, it feels a whole lot longer. You have to be very careful. We're walking a tightrope here, aren't we? When people worked in coal mines and factories, our passions set us free. Now, with the cost of our passions, they're in danger of enslaving us, and we just have to make sure we walk that tightrope as carefully and as humanely as we can. Man, I just made that up. Wasn't that great? Wasn't that just great? Look at the people over there applauding. Great, wasn't it? Uh, but back, back on to this, uh, the Raiders, the NFL, how, how connected are you on a Sunday evening to the Derek Carr, Josh McDaniels uh, experience? I always tell the truth because I, I think everything else is is just not very is the answer these days because I have, um, well, the greatest uh, pro- programme currently on British, available on British radio <laughs> called Trans Europe Express, yeah. which goes out at nine o'clock at night on a Sunday evening um, and talks about football outside the Premier League at one million miles an hour for three hours. And I have to prepare for that. But here's the little secret for you. Um, uh, the games in France and the games in Italy and the games in Spain finish about 10 o'clock. I've still got two hours to go. So while I'm sitting at this very microphone in this very room saying, right now let's go over to our South American correspondent, Tim Vickery, to discuss the Peruvian Cup final, uh, which happened this afternoon. I've actually got Red Zone on in front of me on my big screen over there. And I've become really, really adept and clever at con- concentrating on the thing I'm doing while watching American football with my with this eye, my right <laughs> eye. And, I, and so I, I keep across the game, and then I, I then finish at midnight and make myself, you know, a sandwich. It's because you can't broadcast full of food, and you can't then eat too much when you come off because you're going to bed later. And I, I then watch the late game, the one I used to present back in the day. Um, and um, it's all the agony of that. So let's say you're finishing at 20 past 12, you've had your sandwich, wait until quarter past one for the American <laughs> football to start. And you've already, I'm exhausted from broadcasting. Once again, I've been required to spill my guts on the ultra creativity. I'm exhausted anyway, waiting for it to kick off and people babbling on about who's going to play and what, who's playing quarterback then. Is there a quarterback controversy? Um, so there's that wonderful moment this week, this year, it only lasted for one week when the American time zones and the British time when our clocks go, they, they, they suddenly you get up, you're having your cup of tea and the American football starts. Oh, I love that. And it happened to me this week as well, because the show I was doing, because the World Cup has changed the schedules, finished, went from 10 at night to one in the, one in the morning, got my cup of tea, sat down in front of the television, bang, in another room, turned it on. And there was the game starting. So I still watch the American football as much as I can. Um, and the Raiders are, I have to say, um, if they were to have a good team, and how long have we been saying that for, I think I would be very, very happy to watch them getting into the playoffs and moving through the playoffs. But I am afraid I have um, not abandoned them. They're in my heart, but they're not at the front of my mind anymore <laughs> because well, you know, when they gave John Gruden, what was it, a 144-year contract? 12 million, 12 years and stuff. What club, what club in any sport in the world would do something as stupid as that? I Only think we'd, one. Li- 
we'd like our managers to have a one-year contract, Danny, and on uh, <laughs> insurers over here. Well, you may not. I, I wouldn't mind. Oh no, no, no. I, I, yeah, I'd like him to go or have a three-year contract, either of which would be very beneficial. Um, but as I say on the View from Lane podcast that I do, um, he has managed to convince me, Antonio Conte, after a lifetime of watching the game with laser-like interest. I know nothing about football because the way Spurs set up, the way they play, I presume they're in the bottom three. <laughs> there they are in the Champions League places and winners of their Champions League group. Let me give you an example. Think about this. In their last eight games before the break for the World Cup, Spurs maintained their position in the top four. They also finished top of their Champions League group. In those eight games, they were ahead for a grand total of nine minutes including the seven minutes they were 4-3 up against Leeds. So in the seven other games, their being in, in front of the football matches amounted to exactly 120 of your English seconds. And somehow, Antonio Conte and Harry Kane have managed to parlay this into a pretty successful-looking season. It's nuts, and I know nothing about the game anymore. Stuart, we went 80 minutes before going view from the lane extra. That's yeah, not that's yeah, not bad going. Yeah, that's not bad uh, going. It's, it's also very seahawky. That is that's what that's what the former quarterback used to do to us on a, uh, the hours yeah. But, of but those the, the, the stats of Spurs now are just are just bonkers. They've yeah. gone they've gone mad. It's gone mad. I think I think last season Coventry scored 16 goals in, in injury time of either half as well. So. I've got yeah. a very great friend of, who supports Cov, as you people call it, um, yeah. and I am. Um, so I get a pretty a pretty regular update of the latest nomadic doings of Coventry City. It's a shame. What a oh great gosh. club! My when Jimmy, Jimmy Hill Jimmy Hill built one of the great clubs from the ground upwards. There, um, invented almost changed the league to suit Coventry at various occasions. <laughs> I can remember in the nineties, season after season, when Coventry were always fourth bottom. They also had to play Spurs the last game of the season. Ninety-seven, last and they would, season. And they would, they would turn up 20 minutes late to make sure they yeah, knew what they, they needed did. for the last 15 minutes of the game. That's a great football club. I remember their brown Coventry corporate kit, kit yeah. um, and Ian Wallace's ginger hair on top of it, making him look like a, a chocolate orange that you might have at Christmas. Um, it was all we, a great we, club. We, uh, and, we, and, now, and now you're a mess, aren't you? And Mike Ashley is coming to save you now. Yeah, uh, yeah. We also took a free kick, which is so good they outlawed it. Yeah, like two days later as well. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm seeing Willie Carr and Ernie Hunt. Yeah, the donkey kick. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. No, we're, 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 we're on the Hang way on. back. But when I was invited of... on it, I wasn't told it was going to be some kind of counselling session. <laughs> <laughs> No, we're fine. We're fine. Lie, we, lie on a couch and give me 50 if, if, quid and I'll talk to you about Coventry. If, if, if we get to February 1st with the same striker up front, I think we'll, we, we could have a, few, a fun few months, but January's going to be a long month. Um, so, Daddy, on this pod, we do a thing called uh, Get in the Bin, which is like a person or a thing, which is annoying us that week. Um, I think you've spent the last hour putting every aspect of everything into that bin, but... Um, Adam, do I kick us off? You got anything for the bin this week? Well, we, we did. We did last week the sort of uh, furore at the. Uh, I don't know if you were up to date, Danny, with the Indianapolis Colts basically appointing a TV 
uh, star as a head coach. And <laughs> Jeff Saturday, yeah. In, indeed. And uh, the uh, the coaching cognoscenting community got very up in arms and it was a bit, Lady Duff protest a bit too much at this idea that how dare this outsider come in and dare, you know, we've done 28 hour days for 19 days a week for 60 weeks a year. And that, that was quite funny. But um I was quite disappointed they weren't able to get over the line because it, it is quite a funny story seeing this uh, this TV you know high school coach come in and just rip apart everything that the uh, you know that those uh, that are grandfathered in uh, are trying to uh, suggest you know it's just sports guys you know I say about my job I'm just making the dinner it's not that difficult <laughs> it's also money ball isn't it what you knew yesterday is wrong today because the thing moves on it moves on culturally politically financially emotionally. Um, if I, Alex Ferguson was the greatest manager, um, in, in football because he was open to change. Um, I've been allowed to keep broadcasting into my dotage because I've tried to be up with change, technological, uh, every other way. Um, not because I'm such a special person, just because I've happened to be built that way. I'm interested in what's new and what's happening, what's interesting. Um, but the, the, the Jeff Saturday thing, you're absolutely right. The uproar about it was, it's only what, it's pathetic, isn't it? Mm. Oh, I mean, you, you, you interview, you've interviewed brilliantly for many, many years. And I presume that you see, you know, as people become younger and younger that sit in the chair opposite you, the way in which you have to interact with them is different. And that seems Absolutely. to be something that is not appreciated by a 60 year old coach that the way you did it, unfortunately, is just not the way anymore. And it, it may still be a very brilliant way but it may not work with the people who, who are in the end. Uh, look, this is, a, this is a matter of communication. There is a mistake that gets into the head of successful people and communicators particularly, talking to you two and myself here, the idea that what I'm doing now is communicating. I am not communicating. I am broadcasting. Communication is the act of reception. If the person you're broadcasting to doesn't receive the message, you have not communicated. And I think... That is what leads to these entrenched views, these insane ideas that only a certain kind of thing will work or a certain kind of coaching or the people in Moneyball sitting around going insane when they're throwing those little names at the, at the whiteboard when they're doing the draft in the baseball. Um, if, you, if, you, if you don't learn the new languages, be they physical languages, technological languages, you can't hope to communicate with the young people. And the young people, of course, are always in a majority we forget that too in our democracies. The young people are always in a majority. Um, yeah, uh, have I got anything to put in the bin? I put most things in the bin already. I think <laughs> I, I might, I might have, I might have about two hours in me on Gianni Infantino's speech, <laughs> where he told me it was my fault that he had sold um, and pocketed the money for selling. Yeah, get your lawyers onto that. Um, <laughs> that he had sold the World Cup to Qatar. Um, and that anyone who thinks differently is themselves a racist, uh, an imperialist, um, a disabledist, and all the rest of it. What an absolute wall, as we used to say in the playground. <laughs> you And, of course, the, the playbook of pretending the past is the future, pretending that everything is exactly the same moral and relative moral, moral value. It's straight out of the playbook of Vladimir Putin, um, Bashar al-Assad, Steve Bannon is disgusting, and I probably 
I hope we've got another 20, 25 years on this planet. But I'd happily spend six months of whatever time I've got left to punch him square in the face. <laughs> you don't own football. You don't even like football. You yeah. are a creep and a snake, and I would smack him straight into his face. It's the wrong thing to do. I don't advise your listeners to do it. I certainly wouldn't want any of my young relatives to see me doing it. But that was my reaction to that disgusting piece of propaganda the other day. Yeah. Um, now you're going to moan about Coventry again, no, aren't not, you? No, no, no. <laughs> so I'm just, I, 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 just before we start podding, uh, Nick Sirianni going in the Colts fans, that one was for Frank Reich. Against, the only reason that game was close is because probably Frank Reich isn't on the other sideline on Sunday. That's, That's a true. Bit, that was a bit cheap. Also, the Denver Broncos, what are you doing? Oh, it's magnificent. What are they doing? It's incredible to watch from our point of view, but they they should have won that game on Sunday. They clock management and everything else, cutting the running back just to, as our, as our man Joe Fan suggests, is just a shield for the flailing, failing quarterback. If they had scored 20 points, they'd be 9-1. and one. And the, Seahawks... the, the other, the, sorry, the other thing I might put in the bin is Tom Brady. He has spoiled the game for me for the past two decades <laughs> um, because I, I so love the parity that the idea that you have to wait every season for the New England Patriots to get beaten before you enjoy the games. Danny, it's like when, on, I, on that it's note, like when Arsenal should be in the Champions League. Like, no, but, but do you not find that having that Death Star that we all unite <laughs> amount, unite together to want to beat, does that not get... I feel that the NFL lacks a bit of an edge now without the Patriots as that horrible entity to defeat. Sure. Sure, but when you look at uh, uh, perhaps an equally brilliant genius, and people, he hasn't gone to rings yet. When you look at the way Patrick Mahomes plays the game, and the way that Travis Kelsey plays the game, and you look at the risks they're prepared to take, and they're not going to win six Super Bowls in the next ten years, twelve years, Kansas City. I don't believe they are, but they are going to entertain us, and they're going to remind us that sport is about risk and magic. And I saw. Uh, you know, bright people on their last game, was it Thursday night they were on the telly, saying, oh, look, they're the Harlem Globetrotters. What an idiotic comment. The Harlem Globetrotters, the games were decided in advance. The other <laughs> team wasn't trying to stop them. Mahomes, Kelsey, etc. they're doing this with the other team doing their level best, often with amazing athletes, fantastic coaches, and computerizations trying to stop them. There's no comparison. Um, the entertainment they've brought in the last three years, I think, in Kansas City has been has renewed my faith in the in the game. Actually, in the NFL, yeah. mm. one, uh, one more bit for me is all the um, mainly American uh, soccer fans uh, over the last forty eight hours who are suggesting that people like Tyreek Hill could play in a World Cup um, mm. because it's just it's a different, as you said, with like Harry Kane trying to be a NFL mm-hmm. kicker. It's the same thing. Like Pat McAfee posted a video of him just kicking the living lights out of a football uh, in his uh, massive studio in Indianapolis. It's, it's, it's not the same. And I think he's the only person who seems to like appreciate the difference. And he said, just because he plays... Soccer. Usain Bolt thought he could play football as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah how'd that yeah, turn yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, final question, Danny. Obviously, enemy is where you started and on your on your career. If you could pick the Super Bowl halftime show, who, who, who would you go for? Like if, if you had if you had twelve fourteen minutes to fill on the biggest televised non World Cup, and I can and I, and I can tra- time travel as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone, yeah. Any, of course, any, of course. Anyone you want. On the first morning of Woodstock, Santana, who were then a club band, a pub band, 
Richie Havens played. He opened the festival. And then to a field of a quarter million people, the teenage Santana came onto the, onto the stage. Now, it's daylight. I want to see this at halftime in the night. And for the first 15 minutes, they did Soul Sacrifice. Their drummer had just turned 18. <laughs> the, the, the moment when all that conga playing at the start suddenly gives way to that crashing chord that brings in Soul Sacrifice. If I could have been on the stage with them, that's the one thing I would have done other than perhaps winning a trophy with Spurs remote fantasy department um <laughs> i would have been with santana on the stage on, on, on the mor- first morning of woodstock and if i have 15 minutes only it would be santana doing soul sacrifice and if you don't believe me go and watch it on youtube and watch how young people can just change the world in front of your very eyes with a blink of an eye and enough talent yeah that's that's, a, that's, uh, that's exactly what i'm gonna do when we wrap up this soon call uh, where can people Catch you on all your social media. Uh, they can't catch me anywhere for the next couple of weeks because I'm going on honeymoon to the United States. Nice. Um, it's lovely, yes. Um, got married about a year ago and uh, COVID, uh, various things have put off what we had to do and uh, we're going to go and do that. But normally you can hear me on Talk Sport, um, uh, certainly on Monday on H&J where I view the whole Premier League weekend. Um, certainly on Sunday night where I do Trans Europe Express and my podcast, um, I say mine, I do with the Athletic View from the Lane with Spurs podcast. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased to say it goes gangbusters and is gradually hunting down every other one club podcast uh, in Britain. Only Manchester United to get now. Um, you've, got to have, you've got to have something to hunt and that's what I'm hunting next. Well, Danny, if I may say, I've had quite a lonely job kind of in the event caters- event catering industry and I'm alone in the kitchen quite a lot. And um, your voice in particular has been uh, a constant friend for a long time. And um, I just want you to know that it's very much appreciated because I'm sure you don't hear that. Well, maybe you do hear it, but it is genuinely appreciated for those that listen. And as people that are sat here with microphones pretending to, uh, you know, hack their way around as broadcasters, <laughs> hearing and getting the chance to speak to you. Um, I wanted to let you know it's really appreciated because you've you've been a big part of of, of my uh, my adulthood really and, and it's been great. Adam, uh, I don't hear that very often, and when I do, I don't go all starry about it and say oh, leave me alone. I'm delighted to hear that. And yes, the one thing that does happen to me uh, over the years is that people come up to me and say, "What about this? Remember when you did that?" Um, and one or two of the things that myself, myself, and Danny Baker have done together have entered into the culture, and um, I'm very pleased. But also, the most important thing is. Through things like Twitter and talking to you here, people do say the nicest things. And uh, I say, I love to hear them. I bathe in them. So thank you very, very much indeed. You yeah. and Mickey Quinn in particular were a real highlight between 10 and 1 for uh, for many years. It's a funny old funny old show that, wasn't it? Because it, really it was just a series of jokes about each other. And, it, and it Star Wars well. noises or something along those lines, just great. But Mickey Mickey's obsessed with Star Trek for those who didn't Star Trek, sorry. I would always say, here is Mickey Quinn's Star Trek moment. And we always played Star Wars music. It was a tiny joke. And of course, I know the soul of comedy is repetition. If you keep doing the same thing, it becomes funny. But still people tweeted and texted and emailed every day, that's Star Trek, you're doing <laughs> Star Wars, it's not right. And you just think, great, it's working then. It's good. <laughs> yeah, a pleasure, uh, gents, total yeah, pleasure. No, must, massively appreciate you taking the time. We said it'd be half an hour or so, and it's been almost treble that, so yeah, really appreciate Don't your time. Don't tell my and, agent, yeah, that's, the, that's the main thing. <laughs> I want to do it because Adam asked me very, very nicely, and I like his work on Twitter. 
Um, uh, and I didn't tell my agent because otherwise, believe me, this would never have happened. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, if all the usual means and methods to get in touch with the podcast, patreon.com forward slash patreon podcast, Podbean, Spotify, iTunes. Enjoy the game, whichever corner of the world you're watching it from on Sunday. The Seahawks are back. Gino Smith is back on his MVP campaign, which is a sentence and a half. <laughs> Until next time, though, this has been the Pedestrian Podcast. Go Hawks. <laughs>